I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we preach our 70th sermon from this epistle. 1 Corinthians 15. We are certainly on the home stretch of this book, and we uh, certainly are now in the most lengthy, most deep chapter of this book. So we'll consider today verses 3 through 8, verses 3 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read our text for us. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. These are the words of God. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, And then of the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. As Christians, one of the truths that we dogmatically affirm is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, we affirm that sinners are made right with God, not through any works of their own, but exclusively through believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. Yet while we affirm, listen carefully, while we affirm the exclusivity of faith as the only instrumental cause of our justification, we also affirm that saving faith is not a blind faith. God does not call upon us to believe anything that is illogical or that is absurd or that is without credible evidence. No, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It is a reasonable faith because the gospel is rooted in objective, undeniable, evidence-based, historical facts. Two men may have a difference of opinion about a subjective matter. Okay, wait, I mean, hey, you might you might like bread basket. Okay, that's the that's the for, for those who listen on sermon audio, that's the color of our new walls. It's called bread basket. You might like bread basket. You might like whatever blue Jackson was gonna paint this church, okay? We can we can disagree about those things. Subjective matters. They may part way. Uh, at at various points of social philosophy or political theory. But historical facts are not up for debate. Uh, Wasn't it some one of the, you know, talking heads on, on the news one time that had that famous quote, facts don't care about your feelings? That's true. They don't. They're facts. Either a man named Jesus Christ walked this earth 2,000 years ago or he didn't. That man either died on a cross or he didn't. That man either laid in a tomb and rose again the third day or he didn't. And whether or not you believe in the gospel does not change the facts of the gospel. But... The facts of the gospel do serve as the warrant for your belief. It is because of the facts of the gospel that the Bible says in Psalm 14 and again in Psalm 53, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Because of the historical facts of the gospel, belief in Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection is not a blind leap of faith. But to reject the truth of Jesus Christ is to be the epitome of a fool. This is the thesis in the text that is before us today. 
Paul is mounting his argument in defense of the resurrection. And though he is not yet addressed head on, those in the Corinthian church who are denying the resurrection, he is in these verses laying a very firm foundation. Paul is really doing something just marvelous in the beginning of chapter 15. Something that really you, you, you have to pay attention to really appreciate what Paul is doing here in chapter 15. He begins by rooting the salvation of sinners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We looked at that last Sunday or last time I preached from 1 Corinthians 15. Remember he says, I'm preaching to you the gospel and you're saved by the gospel if you hold fast to the gospel. So he, he roots our salvation in the gospel, right? But then he goes on to root the resurrection in the very heart of the gospel. So follow Paul's masterful equation here, okay? No gospel, no salvation. No resurrection, no gospel. Therefore, without the resurrection, there is absolutely no salvation. That's his logical train of thought here. But that's not enough. He goes a step further. To completely submit his argument, he confirms and concludes to root the gospel of which the resurrection is an indispensable component in objective, undeniable historical facts. Thus what Paul leaves us with in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15 is a stunningly beautiful and ultimately rational defense of the Christian faith. It is this reasonable defense of the gospel that gives me the boldness to say to you, you must believe the gospel and you are a fool if you don't. Well, that's an overview of this passage. Really, what I did was just preach the whole passage in about seven minutes. But I know you didn't come here for a seven-minute sermonette. But that's, that's the, the message of this passage. And I wanted to give you that big picture so that you know what to look for now as we go through this text line by line. And I, I want you to watch Paul develop his argument. And let me just say, I hope that you are amazed with the writings of the Apostle Paul as I am. I, I, I mean, Paul... I, I get it. I know doctrine of inspiration. It's the Holy Ghost speaking through Paul. But here's the beautiful thing about the doctrine of inspiration. It's organic. That means the Holy Spirit inspires Paul and it's the word of God without mixture, but yet it's still Paul. And we see his personality and we see his skills and we see his diction. That's why you read Paul, you read Peter. They sound very different. It's the word of God, uh, but they sound very different because the Holy Spirit retains their natural characteristics and personality in their writings. And I am just in love with the logical precision of the Apostle Paul. I mean, reading the Apostle Paul, when he lays out the corpus of Christian doctrine, is like watching a world-class attorney develop his case before the jury. Yet You ever seen a really, really good attorney? And he starts with a line of questioning and you don't even know why he's asking these particular questions. You're thinking, what does this have to do with the heart of the issue? But then when he begins to connect all of the dots and it all just makes sense, you think, wow, that was amazing. That's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 15, okay? I, I think the Apostle Paul is just proof of total depravity because you have to be depraved. Your, something has to be wrong in your mind for you to read this text and not come away believing in the gospel. So I hope that this just fills you with wonder as it fills me with wonder. Well, let me show you a few things from this text, verses 3 through 8. And we'll spend, I want to say this at the front so you don't get nervous, we'll spend a lot of time in the beginning of this passage, and, and then we'll, we'll look at the, the remaining verses rather quickly, okay? So the first thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see the gospel delivered. The gospel delivered. Paul begins in verse 3 with one of the most important words in the Bible, okay? It's the word for. Large doors swing on small hinges. And the word for is a very important word in the Bible. 
And he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Uh, By using this preposition, for, he begins uh, by signaling to us that he is extrapolating verse 3. He's explaining verse 3. So he told us in verse 3 that we're saved if we hold fast to what he preached unto us. Well, the question then is, okay, Paul, what did you preach, right? So he's going to tell us what it is that he preached. For, notice this phrase, I delivered unto you, and then we have this first of all there in the middle. We'll look at that later. But what I want you to notice here is, for I delivered unto you that which I also received. I delivered what I received. Is this language familiar? I delivered what I also received? Well, it should be if you've been paying attention in 1 Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 2, Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye keep, or that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Verse 23 of chapter 11, Paul says, For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The language of delivery and reception is something that the Apostle Paul has employed before, and it is the language of apostolic tradition. We preached a whole sermon on that concept when we started in chapter 11 several months ago. And you need to remember that when we speak of tradition in the New Testament sense, in the biblical sense, we mean something very different than how tradition is often defined in our modern culture. When we speak of apostolic tradition, we're not talking about Christian social customs that you can take or leave. We have those, right? We have have traditions that we do as Americans or as Christians, that are are objectively not commanded. So we can take them, we can leave them. If you don't want to participate in them, you don't have to, right? But when we talk about apostolic tradition, biblical New Testament tradition, we're talking about that infallible deposit of truth that the Lord Jesus gave to his church through his apostles. The word apostle, right, literally means messenger or one who is sent off with a message. That's what an apostle is. He's a sent one. So we need to ask the question, well, with what message were the apostles sent? And the answer is the apostles were sent with the message of Christ to his church. How do, how do we have the Word of God today in the church? How do we have the New Testament? Well, the apostles gave it to us. Do, do you know that there are still apostles in the church today? Now, they're not living apostles. They're not newly ordained apostles. But if we don't have apostles in the church, we don't have anything. We better have the apostles. Paul and Peter, right? And Matthew and the apostle, the apostles that wrote the New Testament. We need these apostles, don't we? Why? Because they were the chosen messengers to communicate the word of Christ to us, his church. And let me say this. If I made you uncomfortable by saying that there's still apostles in the church today, let me say this. The only place where we find apostolic revelation is in the New Testament. So if someone comes up to you and claims that they're an apostle, well, if If you don't see their name in the table of contents of your Bible, they're not an apostle. By using this language of tradition, Paul is communicating several things to us. Number one, the gospel did not originate with him, but with Christ. That's important, okay? Yes, there are times in the New Testament when Paul calls the gospel my gospel. But what he means by that is not that I came up with the gospel, but that I've owned the gospel. And I hope that all of you can say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is my gospel. It's my good news. But there are false teachers, and they are false teachers that would would teach that there are multiple gospels. And they'll say, well, there's the, the, the Jewish gospel, 
you know, that, that uh, Jews believe to be saved. And then there's the Gentile gospel, which is Paul's gospel. And, you know, that's the one we need to believe. But then there's the, the everlasting gospel. And there are three separate gospels. No, friend, there's one gospel. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of Paul. It's the gospel that we believe. The gospel did not originate with Paul. It originated with Christ. He says, I'm just delivering to you what I received. Don't shoot the messenger, right? Secondly, this language of tradition tells us that the gospel is a timeless and transcendent message. It is to be passed down. It is to be upheld throughout every generation until the return of Christ. What we need to build a true, healthy church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not some new method or some new practice. It's the same gospel that's been preached now for 2,000 years. Thirdly, this language of tradition tells us that it is the responsibility of everyone who receives the gospel to also deliver the gospel. If you've received it, it's now your responsibility to deliver it. Paul did not receive the gospel and then keep it to himself, did he? Christ delivered the gospel to Paul so that Paul might deliver it to others. That's why the gospel was delivered to you. Not so that you would hoard the gospel as your own private little secret, but so that you would declare and deliver it to others and proclaim this message that was first proclaimed to you. The person-to-person delivery of the gospel is the primary means that God has ordained for the accomplishing of His redemptive purposes and the sustaining of His church. Why are you a Christian in the year 2024? Because someone delivered the gospel to you. And someone delivered the gospel to the person who delivered it to you. And someone delivered it to that person. And someone delivered it to that person. And someone delivered it to that person. And on and on and on. Throughout the history of the church, that's how God has saved his people. Through the the reception and delivery of the gospel. But this is also how God preserves his church from doctrinal and moral impurity. See, the gospel must be preached in every generation because every church is only one generation from apostasy. Here we are in 1 Corinthians. Only one generation removed from the life of the Lord Jesus himself and there are already people in the Corinthian church apostatizing from the gospel through a denial of the resurrection. That's why I've stressed this many times before. We need to be very thankful for everything the Lord has done, but we don't need to take anything for granted. Do we want this church to still be preaching the gospel when these children are our age and older? Then we need to be faithful in preaching it now. So what's the remedy when, when a church begins to apostatize from the gospel, what do we do when the gospel is distorted or lost? We preach it again. That's what Paul de- does. He preaches it again. It's not some new method or new message. It's the same message that needs to be preached again. We deliver it as Christ originally delivered it to us through his apostles. The perpetual delivery of the gospel is the responsibility not only of the gospel minister, but of every born-again believer who has first received the gospel. You may never formally preach the gospel from a pulpit, but you must employ the faculties that God has given you in the propagation of the gospel as he providentially grants you opportunity to do so. And that might mean preaching sermons every Sunday, or it might mean keeping a few gospel tracts in your car so that when you go to get an all-star breakfast at Waffle House, you're able to hand it to the waitress when you give her her tip. But if you are not engaged 
in the delivery of the gospel, you are either a Christian who is woefully disobedient or perhaps you yourself have never actually received the gospel in the first place because you can't deliver something you haven't first received. So Paul says, I delivered unto you that which I also received. But notice in the middle of that, he has this phrase, first of all. When Paul says, I delivered unto you first of all, he's not here speaking chronologically. So he's not saying that this was the first sermon that I preached to you when I came to you. It probably was, but that's not what he's saying, okay? He's not saying that he delivered the gospel with regards first with regards to time, but with regards to importance. He's saying of all the messages that I could have preached, of all of the, the sermons I could have delivered, of all of the things I could have taught you, this is the most important one of them all. Nearly 20 years ago, Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, wrote an article. The article was entitled, A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. It sounds really fancy, but it's really a very simple concept. It's actually a short article. Um, when I was preparing, I, I almost, I didn't, maybe I will after this sermon, I almost just emailed it out to everybody in the church because it's so helpful. A call for theological triage in Christian maturity. Well, in the article, Moeller put forth three levels or tiers of theological urgency. Triage is a French word that means to sort or to order, and it's often used in emergency rooms, okay? Uh, emergency rooms use triage because they have all of these people coming in, and they can't serve them on a first-come, first-served basis because someone comes in with a stubbed toe, and some, even though they got there first, and then somebody walks in with a gunshot wound in their chest cavity, that person needs to be cared for first. Okay? So that's called triage. It's assessing which need is most important. And Moeller takes that principle and he applies it to theology. And it's very helpful. I'm going to try to break this down and I'll show you how it really relates and pertains to what we're looking at today. But if you really grasp this concept, I think it'll help you. Let me use Moeller's basic approach to paint a visual illustration in your mind. Now, the illustration is my illustration. Moeller doesn't use this illustration. So I've illustrated the article and now I'm going to try to preach it to you without drawing anything because I can't do that okay imagine imagine a big circle and inside that big circle there's a smaller circle and inside that smaller circle there's an even smaller circle so three circles with the smaller ones inside the bigger ones this illustration this three-tiered circle represents all of the doctrines that are taught in the Bible. So anything, any teaching that we could derive from Scripture in the Christian faith is inside one of these three circles. Why? Because there's no such thing as an irrelevant or insignificant doctrine. We, we can't discount anything God has said to us. But there are doctrines of more pressing importance than others. There are doctrines with greater practical implications than others. There are doctrines over which we might disagree, but those doctrines do not in any way, really, at least they shouldn't in any way, affect our fellowship. We can be at the same church, we can sit on the same pew, and we can have a disagreement over this doctrine. Okay? Doctrines in that category would be in the, the really big circle. Okay. Well, then we move into the, and I'm not going to give any examples because that would just open up a can of worms, okay? But then we move into the second circle. And in the second circle are all of the doctrines that are not essential to Christianity, but they are essential to ecclesiastical or church fellowship. So if someone disagrees with us on these doctrines, we would never say that they aren't a Christian, but we might find it more helpful to worship God in separate churches. Right? I'm sure you can think of some examples. I'm not going to give you any. Okay? But they're, still, but they're still Christians. We recognize them as our brothers in the Lord. We love them. And we would work together with them in many ways. It just makes more sense on Sunday morning. To, we worship in our church and they worship in their church. For practical 
theological reasons. But then we move into this third circle. It's the smallest circle, but it is the most important circle. Because the only doctrines that are in this circle are doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith. In other words, if you don't believe the doctrines in this third circle, you aren't a Christian. Not only can you not be a member of the church, but you're not a member of Christ. And brothers and sisters, we must be very careful about what is and what is not in this circle because there's two great dangers. One danger is taking something out of that circle that needs to be in there. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Doctrine of the resurrection is not a second or third circle issue. It's a first circle issue. But the other danger is putting stuff in there that doesn't belong in there. Well, what does this illustration have to do with our text? Why did I take the time to paint this picture of theological triage? Because I want you to see that when Paul says, For I delivered first of all, he's saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the very center of this most important third circle. The gospel. I, I, I struggle to find words to really stress this to you enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just in the third circle, it is the, the bullseye of that circle. It is the, the very center of that circle that contains those doctrines essential to Christianity. Why must we be so careful about the gospel? Because there is so much at stake when we talk about the gospel. There is no doctrine more important, more critical, more vital to our faith, more indispensable to our religion than the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the truths upon which the gospel stands. If we lose the gospel, we lose everything. You, do you see that? We lose everything. Nothing else matters if we don't have the gospel. And in order to have the gospel, we must have all of its components. Because half gospel is no gospel. That includes the resurrection. That's the, this is part of the argument that Paul is mounting. Do you see where he's going? That's the gospel declared. But now, we've seen the importance of having the whole gospel. Now we're going to see that Paul will itemize it. So I want you to see, secondly in this text, the gospel delineated. The gospel delineated. Notice in the middle of verse 3, it says, I declared first, first of all the gospel, right? That which was delivered to me, I declared to you, right? Now he, he begins and he says, How that Christ died for our sins. The first constitutional element of the biblical gospel is the vicarious substitutionary, sacrificial, sin-atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It is not enough to believe that Jesus was a good teacher who left us an example of how to live. No, the gospel teaches us that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, who came to die for his people and to bear the wrath of God in their place and to save them from their sins and give them eternal life. The phrase, for our sins, is the language of substitution. I believe it was Henry Mahan, an old preacher from East Kentucky, that said the gospel could be summed up in two words, substitution and satisfaction. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. We believe that on the cross, He took our place before God. He suffered for our sins, and He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. 
According to divine justice, don't you understand? It should have been you on that cross. It should have been me hanging there, bloodied and beaten and suffering under the condemnation that I so richly deserved because of my many sins. But according to divine mercy, Jesus stepped in and he took my place. He suffered for me. So we sing, bearing shame and scoffing brood, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In His substitutionary death, He not only bears the guilt of our sin on our behalf, but He also substitutes our sin for His righteousness. There's a a deduction of a negative from us that's given to Him and a deduction of a positive from Him that's added to us. So we also sing, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange, clothed in My sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in His righteousness, I'm justified. Saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. Don't forget those pronouns, brothers and sisters. His righteousness, my sins. In my place, He died so that I could be justified. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe the gospel. You have departed from the message of salvation received and delivered throughout the history of the Christian church. Notice he says that this death of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, was according to the scriptures. Now if I asked you, where the death of Christ is found in the Bible, you might point me to one of the Gospels. Or perhaps you would point me to Romans 8 or 2 Corinthians 5 or Philippians 2 or on and on we could go, right? Well, the problem with that is that none of those scriptures would have been what Paul's referring to. Because most of them hadn't been written yet. When he says, according to the scriptures, he is most surely referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament, isn't he? The Old Testament speaks much of the substitutionary death of the Messiah who would come to save his people from their sins. But perhaps no scripture more clearly uh, proclaims to us the death of Christ than these familiar words. Listen to the Old Testament. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her, he- her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These familiar words are, of course, you already know, the 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. There is perhaps no greater proclamation of the death of Christ, written 800 years before his incarnation, yet in every detail 
perfectly picturing what our Lord did for us on that cross. Paul is well aware that the gospel he preaches is not some new novelty. The gospel is the fulfillment of an ancient promise made by God all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That he would send a redeemer to save his people. And in the preaching of the gospel, we declare that such a redeemer has come and his name is Jesus Christ. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Component one, component two. And that he was buried. Do the Old Testament scriptures mention anything about the burial of Jesus? Interesting question, isn't it? Well, in Matthew 12 and verse 40, Jesus himself interprets an Old Testament passage as foretelling of his burial. What did Jesus say there? He says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said, When I read Jonah, I see my burial in that book. That's why it's important that we let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. What is the significance of Christ's burial? Why is it necessary for us to believe in the literal burial of Christ as a key component of the gospel? Because his burial signifies that he really and truly died. You don't bury a living man. You bury a dead man. He was not just beaten and injured on the cross. He gave his life on Calvary. And it was necessary that he die in order to make a full payment for the sin of his people. But the burial of Christ is also necessary because of the third and final component of the gospel mentioned to us in this text. What is that? Well, you know what it is. He goes on to say in verse 4, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It was necessary for Christ to have been literally buried in order for him to literally rise from the grave. Finally, we have in our text an explicit declaration of Christ's resurrection. In chapter 15, Paul is addressing those in the Corinthian church who are denying the resurrection, but he doesn't begin the chapter with a direct treatment of the resurrection itself. Instead, he begins by laying this foundation based on things he's already preached to them in Corinth. And by doing so, he grounds the resurrection in a context that is experiential, doctrinal, and scriptural, and thereby bolsters this Wonderful defense of the resurrection. See, instead of beginning in chapter 15 by saying, well, I hear there's some of you who deny the resurrection, so let's talk about the resurrection. That's what he does all throughout this book, right? He says, well, I hear that there's this problem, let's talk about it. No, what he does here is he waits. He won't actually mention the problem until he gets to verse 12. No, he says, let me begin by reminding you of your own Christian experience. You were saved by the gospel, of which the resurrection is a non-negotiable component. And then he articulates the death and burial of Christ to demonstrate that the resurrection is just as crucial to the gospel as the cross itself. And then he concludes his delineation of the gospel by reminding us that all of these things took place in accordance with Holy Scripture. Paul leaves us with a defense of the gospel that is so emphatic and a defense of the resurrection that is so undeniable that no one in their right mind could even dream of professing to be a true Christian while rejecting the resurrection. This is the beautiful rhetoric and argumentation that I referred to earlier. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is putting on a masterclass in logic, doctrine, and apologetics. Well, just like the death and burial of Christ, so too is the resurrection according to the Scriptures. Again, I could point you to several Old Testament texts that demonstrate the resurrection. But perhaps the most striking is the very passage that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when he defended the resurrection. 
That was Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and specifically verses 9 through 11. Peter preached them on the day of Pentecost. And they read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence. It's fullness of joy at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Peter preaches this text on the day of Pentecost, and he declares that Christ must be the subject of this psalm because David's tomb is still with us to this day. I mean, he says, you, you people think this is about King David, but King David's still in the ground. Now, it will be true of King David. In fact, it will be true of all of us. But in the fullest sense, right now, it's only true of one person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be argued, by the way, not only does Psalm 16 foretell of Christ's resurrection, but it even indicates a third day resurrection. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Does anybody see the, the, the third day resurrection in Psalm 16? Probably not. Let me show it to you. It's in verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. According to the Jews, the corruption of a deceased person set in on the fourth day. Remember the story of Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11 and it was the fourth day and Jesus says, roll the stone away. What does Martha say? I love that. It's one of my favorite verses in the King James. He says, behold, Lord, he stinketh. I think there's people that try to make that their life verse, but I digress. Why, why did they say that? Well, because it was the fourth day. And according to the Jews, the fourth day is when corruption really sets in. And uh, practically speaking, it's when a lot of the spices and things that they would anoint a dead body with begin to wear off. And so, behold, Lord, he stinketh. And Jesus waited the fourth day so that he could really uh, do a, a true and proper unquestionable resurrection. But Jesus rose again on the third day because the Father would not suffer His Holy One to see corruption. Isn't that beautiful? What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? He said, it was not possible for death to hold Him. There was no sin in His life. He suffered on the cross. He was buried. Sin his wages were paid. He had to rise again. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the facts of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ were prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled 2,000 years ago when the Son of God came to this earth. The gospel has been delivered unto us by the Lord Himself through the writings of His chosen apostles and we have received it. And it is this gospel that has saved us, and it is this gospel that we must proclaim until our Lord comes again. And there's a lot about which uh, we can afford to be ignorant. And there are even some things uh, which we can just agree to disagree, but the gospel is neither of those things. The gospel is the definitional message of who we are as Christians, and we must be crystal clear about the gospel. We must be bold in defense of the gospel, and we must be fervent in our desire to preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that's the gospel delineated. But thirdly, now we'll look at the remainder of this text. I want you to see the gospel defended. The gospel defended. I know we've camped out a lot in verses 3 and 4, but that's okay, because what Paul is now going to do in verses 5 through 8 is simply list off historical evidences to what he's just told us, Okay? And he's going to mention, specifically, evidences for the resurrection. Uh, why? Why only evidences for the resurrection? Why not for his death and his burial? Well, uh, for a number of reasons. One, because no one seriously contests the historicity of the death and burial of Christ. Even most secular historians confess that there was a man 
named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and died via Roman crucifixion. So Paul does not spend any time defending that historically. Secondly, follow me, because dying on a cross is not in and of itself a supernatural miraculous event. There were many people during the time of Christ who died on a Roman cross. In fact, it's, it's really providential when you think about it because Roman crucifixion only took place for a relatively short period of time. But in Jesus' day, that was like the heyday of crucifixion. Okay, And many, many people died via crucifixion. What makes the crucifixion of Jesus so tremendously special is that all of the other people that were crucified remained in their grave. And only one of them rose again from the dead. But thirdly, because most importantly, because the resurrection is the specific component of the gospel that is being denied by some in the Corinthian church. And if the resurrection is true, everything else is true. If, if we prove the resurrection, we prove the death and the burial. The resurrection of Christ, is, it's the event that substantiates Christianity. If Jesus came out of that grave, we must believe everything he ever said about who he was and what he came to do. But if he didn't come out of the grave, then why should we believe anything he taught or did? So Paul will now come to prove the historical fact of the resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt, and he presents us with six points of historical evidence in defense of the resurrection. And anyone who knows anything about a court of law will tell you that the strongest and most weighty form of evidence is eyewitness testimony. Uh, DNA evidence on the crime scene is, is a strong indication, but nothing is more compelling than a witness in the witness stand who says, I saw him do it. With my own eyes, I saw it. And this is the form of evidence that Paul puts before us. So notice with me, he says, he's going to give us six different pieces of eyewitness evidence. If this was in a court of law today, this, this verdict would be so uncontested. Six eyewitnesses that all, that all saw the same thing. Okay, Number one, he says, verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's the apostle Peter. It is of no little significance that the Apostle Peter is first in Paul's list of witnesses. After all, it was Peter who denied the Lord shortly before his crucifixion. And in great mercy and compassion, Jesus first appears privately to Peter to reassure him of the promise that Christ gave him before that he would be restored and would in turn strengthen his brethren. Remember Peter, uh, the conversation between Peter and Jesus when Jesus says, Satan has desired to sift you, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, when you are restored, when you've come to repentance, strengthen your brethren. So he goes to him after the resurrection. The Gospels don't provide us with the details of this meeting, but Luke does confirm it. Luke 24, 34 says, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. So he appears to Peter. Then of the twelve, after appearing to Peter, he appears to the rest of the disciples. Now, they're called the twelve, but they're only eleven. Right? Because Judas is gone. He is no more. Uh, but this is not an error. It's simply the fact that they were, uh, they were so commonly referred to as the twelve that that's the designation that Paul uses for them, even though they are eleven. In fact, there's even less than that because there was a disciple who wasn't present on this initial appearance. Thomas, he wasn't there on that first Lord's Day after the resurrection. He missed it. And, and J.C. Ryle tells us uh, that, that we should take this as a lesson to never miss church because you don't know what's going to happen at church if you're not there. <laughs> Maybe Jesus will come back. <laughs> but... Jesus did, however, appear to Thomas, didn't he, the following week? Thomas. By the way, I don't like to call him Doubting Thomas because he's not doubting anymore. He sticks his finger into the wounds in Jesus' hands inside, and what does he say? My Lord and my God. Safe to say that Thomas was a firm believer in the resurrection. Then, this is just 
remarkable. Verse 6. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. The third piece of evidence is nothing short of astonishing. I I mean, think about this. Think about a murder trial going on in Henry County. And and the, the prosecutor gets up to prove the guy's guilty. And the judge says, what's your evidence? And he says, well, I have 500 people that saw him shoot that guy. The case would be closed. They'd break early for lunch. He says, he says he appeared to 500 brethren at once. Now, it's not certain exactly when this occurred, but many believe that this is referring to a promise that Jesus gave before his death. Matthew 26, verse 32, Jesus says, After I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. What's most intriguing about this piece of evidence is that Paul says that most of these 500 brethren are still alive. By the way, it's just 500 men. This doesn't include the women and children that were definitely also present during that appearance. Why does he say the the most of whom are still alive? Because it's like he's saying, here's their phone number. Call them. You don't believe me? Ask them. Is it not remarkable to think that while there are numerous first century sources that corroborate this evidence, there's no source that claims anything to the contrary? That's remarkable. Notice the next piece of evidence. He says, then he was seen of James. This is most likely James, the brother of Jesus, who became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And there's something very special about this piece of evidence as well. What is it? Well, it's the fact that James was not even a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry. In John 7, Jesus' brothers were trying to convince him to go to Judea where the Jews were seeking to kill him. And verse 5 of John 7 tells us the reason. It says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So James didn't believe didn't believe in his teachings, didn't follow him during his ministry. And then we, we read our New Testament, and we see James has got a book in here, and he's a pastor of a church. He's a well-respected leader of the Jerusalem church, the first church. What happened? What convinced James that his brother was the Son of God and the Savior of the world? James was convinced of the truth about who Jesus is because he saw him in the glory of his resurrection. Paul says, then all the apostles. He mentions another appearance to all of the apostles. We know there, there must have been many of these appearances because Acts tells us that Jesus spent 40 days with his apostles after the resurrection teaching them. But notice in verse 8, the last piece of evidence that Paul gives us is this. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Verse 8 segues into verses 9 through 11 of this chapter, which we'll see next week, and we'll see how Paul viewed himself in light of his ordination to the apostolic office. And though it is true that Paul was the last apostle chronologically to see the resurrected Jesus, again, kind of like when he says, first of all, the beginning, this last of all, is not talking about time. Because the Greek word that Paul uses here carries the meaning, the least of all. It's as if Paul is saying, I was the least of all. I was the the least worthy to see the risen Christ. Why? Because not only was Paul not a follower of the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry, he wasn't a follower of the Lord Jesus after the resurrection. He was a persecutor of Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church. Yet on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ appears to Paul. Changes the course of human history forever. Changes his life forever. And even as a converted and changed man, Paul never forgot where he came from. He knew he was forgiven. He knew that his sins had been paid for, but the sting of who he used to be never left him. There was a sense in which the hideousness of his past was an intimate part of his identity as an apostle, which makes the grace of the gospel all the more stunning in his life. Brothers and sisters, what we have here in this text is indisputable, irrefutable, undeniable proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you come away from this text still rejecting the resurrection, 
Your problem is not a lack of evidence. Your problem is not a historical objection. Your problem is not a doctrinal difference. Your problem is that you are willfully persisting in unbelief because you refuse to repent of your sin and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, although this text is chock full of theological and historical proof, the empirical evidence is not the ultimate reason that a Christian believes in the resurrection. Why do you believe in the resurrection? We believe in the resurrection as Christians because we each have had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. No, we, we haven't seen him with our physical eyes, like those named in this text, but we have seen him with the eye of faith. We know him. We love him. And we are blessed because the Bible says, blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. Summing up this text, again, I quote Brian Borgman to you. He says, quote, the claims of Christianity are irreducibly historical. They either happened or they didn't. But they are also intimately personal because that which is amazingly doctrinal and irreducibly historical is also by necessity experiential. The Lord Jesus Christ is not just a historical fact. He's a living person. He lives right now. Do you know him? Not just the historical facts. <coughs> Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you united to him through faith? What's being offered to you through the preaching of the gospel, what I'm offering to you right now is not just the, the intellectual knowledge of historical facts. Whoop-de-doo, I'm glad you believe in the historical facts. The devils believe in the historical facts. Secular scientists believe in the historical facts because there's so much evidence for them. But what really matters is not just an intellectual knowledge, but do you have an experiential knowledge? Do you know Jesus the way you know the president? You know about him. You've heard what others have said. You've seen him on TV, but you don't know him. Or do you know Jesus the way you know your wife? The way you know your husband? The way you know your, your dearest friend? Do you know him as the almighty God in the person of his son? This is what we must preach. This is what we declare to the world when we preach the gospel. Our message is not just come and know right theology and come and know church history. No, our message is come and know the Savior. Come and know the Lord who was crucified, who was buried, and who rose again on the third day for you to give you eternal life. To give it to you and to give it to all those who believe in him. So I leave you this morning with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Father... We thank you this morning that you have given us such a clear gospel. There are many things in your word that I don't understand. There are many things in your word that are hard to understand. But I'm thankful that the gospel is not one of them. You have made the truth of the gospel so clear. You have allowed us to see the historical proof of the gospel. The historical proof of the resurrection of Christ. But more than that, O oh Lord, you have allowed us to come and to know the resurrected Christ. Thank you for giving us faith to believe, faith to have a relationship with the risen Savior. We know he's living. We know that he is alive and sitting at your right hand, and that he loves us and intercedes for us. We praise you for that. O oh Lord, if there be one here that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't know him in his resurrected glory, would you, by the power of your Spirit, save that person, that they might attain 
on that glorious day unto the resurrection of the dead. Father, we know that just as Christ was raised, we too shall be raised one day. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. But until that day comes, oh, would you bless us and help us to faithfully preach and deliver the gospel that we have also received. We'll give you all the honor and all the glory for everything that you do in Jesus' name.